Hello, and welcome to the Wavemakers podcast, the podcast where we take a deep dive into some of the most interesting technologies working to help our ocean and water resources. If you're at all interested in the ocean, please hang out a while. If you try to keep up with the latest tech and sustainable industries, don't hit that pause button. Or if you have a New Year's resolution to try and understand the world around you a little better so you can have a more positive influence on the world through education, investment, or even employment, let's do this. I'm Tamara Khan, and I'm happy to be here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, able to bring you the innovators that are working to support humanity and our blue planet through technology. Let me start by saying, please feel free to reach out. I'd be delighted to hear your feedback. Maybe you're a company who would like to be on the pod or a sponsor looking to reach a broad ocean-loving audience. Find me on Instagram at LadyBlueTech or visit the American Shoreline Podcast Network's website to read more about Wavemakers and other great podcasts in the ocean and coastal space. Okay, let's get into this episode. This year on Wavemakers, I'm going to have quite a few guests that will talk about technologies that help monitor and understand our oceans. One question I realize you might be asking is, Okay, but why? Well, the ocean covers 70% of our planet, a number you may have heard before. We're not called the blue planet for nothing. (laughs) And sometimes something that vast is going to have a huge effect on our world. Actually, the atmosphere and the ocean are a coupled system. So understanding how those two interact with each other is critical for predicting changes in global temperature patterns and climate variability. Simply put, the ocean is a majorly influential part of our planet, and it's basically what makes it habitable. And yet, we humans have explored somewhere around 5% of that vast part of our, our Earth. When I was a kid, and let's not mention how many decades ago that was, I often heard that we know more about space than our own planet, and that confused me then, but the fact that it's still being said now really leaves my mind reeling. I'll leave it to the experts I'm psyched to have come on the show to discuss more about why that is the case. But for my part, I can tell you from years of experience working at sea with pretty high tech gear and some genius people, one big reason is it's difficult. The ocean is a very challenging place to work in a whole lot of ways. From getting out there and even making simple measurements in such an environment, the logistics are just crazy. So progress may have been slow. One big challenge facing ocean monitoring technology is power, energy. And today's guest is the founder CEO of a company tackling that issue in a pretty unique way. We all hear about energy from wind and solar, maybe even wave energy, which we'll get into on a later episode. But Dr. Yi Chow, who joins me today, runs SeaTrek, a company that designs and manufactures energy harvesting solutions that generate electricity from naturally occurring temperature differences in ocean waters. Welcome, Yi. Thank you for the opportunity. It's my pleasure to be on your show. Very excited to have you. It's great great to get your input, and I'd love to start with just learning a little bit about your background and how you got here, because I think the first thing I learned about you when we met a few years ago was that you worked at NASA JPL. So... How did a space, or may, are you a space scientist turned oceanographer? How did you get here? Yeah, I used to be a rocket scientist. I, uh, after I got my PhD from Princeton, I um, find my first job in NASA Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena near Los Angeles. 
uh, run by Caltech. So I've been studying uh, ocean from space. I've been studying ocean from uh, computers and try to predict the ocean impact of the weather and the climate. And then throughout the process, I realized and we need more data. So this is back uh, old days and 30 years ago and before the old big data become a household name. Uh, we need a lot of data to train the AI, the machine learning to understand the ocean, to predict the ocean. Satellite is great. They can measure the global ocean, but they can only kind of see at the surface. So in order to get the data below the surface, and I have to work with my colleagues to uh, put a robot in the ocean, uh, ship is very expensive to use and drop a rope and then sensors into the water. We only have a finite number of ships. So the only way to collect a global data um, every day and a few hours is through robotic systems. And then most of my friends and tell me, Energy is a bottleneck, and robots in the sea powered by batteries, then after the battery runs out, you either lost your robots or you find a ship to recharge your battery. So I said, that's an interesting problem. So about 10 years ago, I started to look at this problem, and that started the sea track. It's fascinating. So you you said there's uh, the first problem is it's, it's the ships and getting out there. So it's kind of expensive to collect this data, is my guess knowing what a ship's costs at, at sea? Yeah, typically you go offshore is $50,000 a day, the ship time, and not mentioning, you know, tens of scientists on board and then working three ships a day to drop instrument in the water, collect data, and, and then depend on the sea conditions. So you have a lot of time loss at the same time. You cannot work, right, in the severe weather conditions. Right. So would you say that's why the robotics have really blossomed in this industry, like using robots to measure? Yeah, la last decades is really see the revolution of uh, ocean robotic and then from surface robots to subsea underwater robots. So those really multiply the footprint of ships. So return a tremendous amount of data. There are thousands of robots in the ocean today already at any given time. That was going to be one of my questions for you. Do you know how many robots there are at the moment already in our oceans? Well, there's one one program called Argo have 4,000 of these robots in the water today. So there are many other programs and surface vehicles. And I would say on the order of 10,000. Wow. Wow. Okay. I would I would not have guessed that. I know way back in, in 2009-ish, there were some students from Rutgers that sent a glider, like a self-propelled autonomous vehicle from New Jersey over to Spain. Um, I was following that one. It seemed really neat. Yeah, that's fascinating. The first time crossing Atlantic, and then I've been following their work, and then hopefully someday we can have our power system so we can help them to cross the Pacific, which is never done before. Pacific is much wider than the Atlantic. Oh, super. Yeah, I remember they, they followed Columbus's path or something, the path of Columbus's ship, but in reverse. So uh, we haven't done the Pacific yet. No, Pacific crossing is still a challenge. To do that around the globe, you make a lot of stops. So basically, you go around the globe, periodically you stop at the different port, just like ships, refueling ships. So now the robots have to stop on the port to either swap a battery or recharge a battery and then launch them into the water. So my goal is to work with my colleagues to... Um, to have an energy harvesting system on the glider so they can 
harvest energy on the fly, underway, so they can charge the battery by the sea, so they can cross the Pacific in one charge, maybe go around the globe someday in one charge. Wow. So it's a bold goal, and we have to start start somewhere. I mean, maybe that's the next natural question. What is C-TREK doing? What are these uh, energy harvesting units? Yeah, we are uh, picking up the simplest uh, robots in the sea is something like um, underwater divers. So these robots can dive to any depth of the ocean down to 1000 meters, um, basically powered by batteries in the past. So they carry sensors to collect data, they come to the surface periodically, send data to satellite to return to the database. And those are the 4,000 robots I mentioned earlier, but they all power by batteries and today and um, battery runs out and majority of these uh, low cost robotic vehicles is get lost at sea because it costs more to recover them. So we have to deploy on the order of thousands of new robots every year to replace the dead ones. Not only is costly, but also, you know, we're leaving lithium batteries behind you know, talk about the plastic pollution. We don't want to be uh, eventually pollute the ocean with batteries at the same time. I was going to ask you, I imagine some of those floats don't get recovered and just end up no. sinking. 90, 90, over 90% of the float not get recovered. They are drifting in the ocean, kind of buried at sea. Wow. <laughs> I can imagine all sorts of problems that you guys are tackling with this. Like um, The... I guess, firstly, how are you doing it? How are you harvesting energy from the ocean? I, I believe it's through temperature differences. And as a scuba diver, I know I've felt a thermocline before. So what are you doing with that? Yeah, you all know if you dive into the deep ocean, it's getting colder and colder. So surface is warm, deep water is cold. So that's the temperature difference and the thermal energy we are harvesting from. So we are using these very special materials. Uh, they uh, they changing phase from solid to liquid when they uh, experience cold and warm temperature. So it's like you, um, you, you're melting your candle in your house. So basically you have an expansion when you're solid to liquid. And that's expansion. We turned uh, thermal energy into uh, kinetic energy. And that spin the motor and generate electricity and this recharge the battery. So essentially ocean have infinite thermal energy associated with the temperature difference. And as you swim, dive in the ocean, you, you collect this temperature difference kind of energy for free and then recharge your battery. So you extend your lifetime essentially indefinitely until something fails. So you could power a, um, a glider or some sort of robot indefinitely. That's huge. Essentially, we remove the energy at the bottleneck. It, today, energy is the single biggest bottleneck. The battery have a limited capacity once you leave the shore, leave the ships. So now we have ability to allow these divers and gliders to recharge themselves and uh, by this infinite thermal energy in the ocean. Over two-thirds of the ocean have this temperature difference. Every time you feel temperature change as you dive, you turn that into electricity and then you charge your batteries, essentially extend your lifetime continuously. It's amazing. Um, and you're using some sort of phase changing material inside to, to move that mechanical motor. 
Yeah, those materials are well known. It's dirt cheap and then used by industry, by storage trucking and storage facilities. Um, it's a chemical commonly known. And uh, we just package them in such a way to, um, uh, to power the underwater robot. That's really the sea track innovation. I feel like um, I'm sure it's been explained to me before how an air conditioning works with refrigerant being a phase changing material that you're using to cool and heat. So your air conditioning could both cool and heat your house because of the properties of that refrigerant liquid. Yeah, similar way you can do liquid to gas phase change. That's essentially a steam engine and refrigerator works. And then we are doing solid to liquid for many of these uh, first implementation for low powered consumption robots in the ocean. Wow. And how did you, I guess, how did the testing go for something like this? Were you putting these in... in the ocean and sending the units up and down. I guess, would you talk a little bit about the journey to get to this technology? Sure. Before I get to the testing, I should point out uh, this is not my idea. The idea was proposed by the pioneer oceanographer Henry Stommel almost 30 years ago when I was a graduate school in the late 80s. And there has been multiple attempts to turn this into a commercial product. Uh, we are really fortunate to... Uh, uh, to take this idea and then implement uh, for the first time for ocean testing. Uh, we develop the technology, you test in the lab, you create a tank in the ocean, uh, tank in the lab and pretend to be ocean. You do a lot of testing before you charter a boat and then put it in the ocean. Once you release from the ship, you know, the chance is the robots may never come back. So, uh, so we do a lot of testing in the lab. Uh, demonstrate the system work in the laboratory and um, as and then we take to the ocean test and prototyping demonstrate the principle um, we when we deployed this almost like eight nine years ago and we do a two almost two year testing of the coast of Hawaii and that's really the um, uh, motivation for me to spin off sea track because I know the technology um, works and there's a there's a market demands and there's a um, application uh, unmet need from the community. So, so that's really motivated me to c try to start the journey to commercialize this technology. Wow, yeah, that's interesting how you go from the concept to the reality and the struggles that you must have must still be facing as a startup um, to, to get support and funding and help people understand that there is a market because now that you know it you have to spread that word so what what kind of challenges did you face i guess getting this started funding wise and where where have you gotten your most support from uh yeah ocean technology climate tech blue economy are relatively new and we are not really as well defined as biotech and fintech or consumer technology. So there's really not uh, sufficient funding from private sectors and the VCs. And there are a few VCs interested in this space. But uh, many of these VCs don't really understand our markets that well. It's poorly defined. It's fragmented. Um, so that's why most investors don't invest uh, the technology they don't understand and then you can they cannot quantify. 
So, so I think it's really challenging to uh, commercialize the ocean tech and particularly hardware, you know, take a lot of longer time than software. Um, so we have been really fortunate in the last five years or so getting uh, quite a bit of government funding. Government grant is, uh, is really helpful to get us started through SBIR, STTR program. And um, we are lucky to receive some philanthropic uh, support, family foundations. And those uh, foundations taking more risk than private investors. And then we have been fairly successful with uh, private investors, individual investors, angel groups, and local Pasadena angels are great to help C-Track to get started three years ago uh, for our uh, uh, fundraising. Some smaller VCs we have been uh, getting on board, and uh, we are at the point ready to scale up our technology, and then hopefully we'll be ready to get the big VCs in about a year or so. Fantastic. Just to explain for some people who haven't heard of SBIRs, they're uh, small business innovation research grants, and it, they come from the government. Are they from all different branches? or? Right. As, uh, is, as 3% of the government discretionary funding uh, have to be devoted to small business grants. So that's SBIR office from about almost 20 different agencies and Department of Energy, Department of Defense, National Science Foundation, NASA, and NOAA. A lot of these agencies have those have to spend 3% of their funding to support small business innovation. That's an excellent source of funding to get a deep tech off the ground. I'm thrilled that you, uh, you managed to get that. It sounds like the Department of Energy, for instance, could really use you. Um, at, I, who else, I guess, let's talk about who's interested in what you can do with this, the data that, that you can enable to be collected. Um, who, who else would you want to hear and know about you? Yeah, there, now we have this uh, uh, infinite uh, lasting uh, p- platforms. We are ready to carry a lot of sensors and to collect ocean data. Uh, as you know, ocean data is, uh, it is very valuable to uh, empower the blue economy. So we hope to uh, be part of this journey to provide big data uh, in the ocean. Uh, the first market we are working on um, is try to use the active acoustic echo sounders to attach those echo sounder in, in, on our floats so we can uh, map the seafloor as you mentioned in the in, in introduction remarks, and then we know more about surface of the moon and the Mars than our own seafloor. Only 20% of the seafloor ever been charted. So essentially we have an ocean map, 80% are holes. So you probably wouldn't drive your car with a Google map with 80% blank out or something. So, so that's essentially what we have in the ocean map is uh, post navigation hazard. Both, um, um, and also for uh, different applications, offshore farming or wind farm installation, any ocean operation offshore, you need to, you need to map the seafloor first. So we don't really have a good map to go after. If you go out tomorrow, you have the first thing you have to hire boats to spend months or years to map the seafloor first. So imagine if we have a 80% gap filled some, by the end of these decades, 
then anybody can go out to see tomorrow and then, you know, dial the next generation maps and then every every bisimetry have a value so you can uh, plan your operation that way. Absolutely. I know that when I first started my career, the very first thing I did was process bathymetry data, seafloor mapping data. And we would go out on the ship and before any survey could begin, you have to map what's down there and see there's a lot of places you have to avoid pipelines or um, protected areas and you gotta you have to know what's there. So um, there's a big push. I know you're involved in this Seabed 2030, which is part of the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. And you know what? I'm going to stop and explain for a moment for anyone who doesn't know, because I certainly didn't know before I got into this line of work that the United Nations designates these international decades to mark particular events and topics. And the goal is to promote their objectives through awareness and action. So 2021 through 2030 has been dubbed the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development. (laughs) And one of the projects that they're endorsing is Seabed 2030. So tell us how SeaTrek is involved or interested in that massive undertaking. Yeah, it's an extremely ambitious uh, undertaking by the international community. Uh, the, uh, the the goal, the aspiration goal is to map the 80% gaps. And by the end of 2030, um, hopefully we can reach that aspiration goal. Um, we we passed the first year. We still have nine years to go. Uh, there will be a lot of ships involved uh, to map using multi-beam to map the seafloor, support different operations. Uh, there's a lot of surface vehicles, uh, uh, even startup companies and raised a lot of funding to uh, position themselves to contribute uh, the seafloor uh, data. Um, SeaTrack hope to provide a, a really interesting low-cost platforms, especially in the remote areas where ship probably never able to go in the middle of the Pacific, south of the equator, for example. Um, those areas are so far away from the coast for the next fueling station. So some areas have never been trans passed by the by the ships so we hope to play a big role in those areas and using our platform uh, to bring the echo sounder to those remote areas and even we contribute 20 percent 30 percent of the goal and that's fantastic so i think it take the entire community multiple different technologies surface robotic vehicles and ships and then our subsurface underwater vehicles so take the entire village to reach that goal. I love that uh, perspective that you have to have all these pieces collaborating because I think people very often aren't you know in- intimately aware of all that goes into one simple uh, project. So powering the sensors that are collecting this data is a major component and then I'm, I'm hoping in the future to have people doing the other aspects of this these kind of projects but you, you mentioned that you could put other sensors on a, on a device, so you're not just using an echo sounder or a multi-beam, I haven't heard that for a while, to map the seabed, but on your way down or back up, you can still collect other data in the water? 
Yeah, we can carry uh, environmental uh, sensors like temperature, salinity, measure the chemistry, the biology. Every time we uh, come to the surface to do the communication, and also we harvest energy every time you dive up and down. So during the process, we can also collect the, the profile data uh, for the physics, chemistry, and the biology, and the ecosystem. Um, the next sensor we are uh, planning and uh, to contribute is to carry hydrophones to uh, detect sound in the ocean. Uh, there's multiple sources from natural um, marine mammals and earthquakes and then wind and rain on the surface. If you dive in the middle of the ocean, you'll hear all those noises coming from the surface, coming from the seafloor. And then you have big ships running by, container vessels, fishing vessels, and recreation vehicles, all kind of noise in the ocean. And so that's what we hope to contribute. There are hydrophones powered by cables near the coast. There are hydrophones lower down from the ships. So we hope to have autonomous platform and then park at a certain depths and then the nice uh, places to listen to those sound so we can scale up to deploy multiple, maybe uh, hundreds, even thousands of these hydrophones, which is you know impossible to achieve with ship-based or cable-powered hydrophones. So we hope to uh, deploy a fleet of these hydrophones. We can pinpoint the source of the, uh, of the sound so we can help to um, navigation, shipping, and hopefully the um, uh, conservation as well to protect our uh, natural resources and the marine mammals. How fantastic. So imagine how many ships you're keeping from being in the water to measure all these things. So you're sort of reducing the noise on that end as well, using your, your that's amazing. So the bathymetry data, we kind of talked a little bit about who it's useful for, but this other data, who who would be interested in salinity, conductivity, or, or temperature in the water? Why is that important? And who, who's your main um, audience. Yeah, as, uh, as we you know, ocean play a big role in modulating weather and climate. So we live near the coast for a reason, because the weather is different from, you know, in the middle of the country uh, or land. So naturally, uh, temperature salinity determine the density of the water, and then that's really drive the near shore conditions of the ocean uh, for the marine weather uh, prediction. And then for the hurricanes, uh, for example, in, um, in, in the hurricane season, uh, ocean feel the hurricanes and they can intensify the hurricanes a very short time. So no, by knowing the ocean conditions, we can improve the intensity forecast of the hurricanes and significantly um, over the last couple of decades, we can predict the track pretty well. We can see where the hurricanes are hitting. What's, what's the uncertainty cones and how many kilometers people have to evacuate. But we do poor job to predicting what category by the time they, do a, they, they have landfall. So category three and the category five hurricane can make a huge difference uh, by convincing people whether they want to evacuate or they just stay put. So by knowing more about the ocean conditions, um, hopefully in the future we can improve the the hurricane prediction of the, specifically the intensity. So uh, we can reduce the damage and then save lives. I, you know, I was thinking about all these new industries coming up, seabed mining and carbon sequestration and carbon capture and sequestration, even wind energy farms. But your example is 
so relevant to everyone. I mean, I'm here in Texas and yeah, Houston gets hurricanes all the time. To, to know where it's going is important, but to know how strong it's going to be, you need this data to put in, do they put it into models and in, in order to predict the hurricane intensity? Yeah, NOAA is official agency forecasting the hurricanes, and they have a so few data go to those models under the sea under the surface. Uh, satellite provide temperature; uh, those data go to the hurricane forecasting models. But there's always only a handful of uh, robots under the ocean. Uh, of course, ship don't go to sea collect data when the hurricane comes. So really rely on aircraft and underwater robots to collect data in the atmosphere, underwater, and as in the sea. So with our technology, we can provide a continuous measurement every day, every few hours, and then feed those data into the hurricane prediction models. And is you know if we can um, reduce the damage of the hurricanes. Um, you know, one, one, one hurricane will pay the bill for all these robots in the ocean. That's a good point to make. Um, that reminds me, actually, then about the your experience with space technology and ocean technology. So there, there's kind of a need for both of them. You, how do you use satellites to send the data back from these sensors in the ocean? Or how do you collect the data? Yeah, once you uh, go away from the shore, you have no signal, you don't sell signal. So the only way to bring data back is either load on top of the, on the ship or or you, you come to the surface, you talk to the satellite. There's a global communication satellite network and then you basically like uh, your cell phone plan, you buy a satellite phone plan, you come to the surface, you talk to the satellite, you can do a two-way communication. You can even send a command to tell the robot to do the next mission. So you have this continuous control of the robot every time they come to the surface. So you um, you can imagine you sit on your smartphone, the data showed up, and they can tell the robot to do certain things, and you can uh, modify your mission, measure different parameters and different intervals to uh, meet your needs. If a hurricane comes, you want to surface frequently after hurricane season, Maybe you can surface every few days, and then to monitor climate, right? So um, if the if the hard next hurricane season coming in, you just say come back every six hours, just like a weather balloon. So you can um, use those data to do weather prediction. So so it's a very powerful uh, companion between space technology, uh, underwater technology. That's so so fun to me because I. Having worked at sea, I feel like I would have loved to be able to sit on land and look at my smartphone and be like, yeah, okay, go ahead. That data is good. So um, you're using the satellites to communicate that data back. And, and of course, the satellites are collecting weather data as well. Of course. And yeah, today is uh, still pretty expensive to do satellite communication, but the, what, that will change, you know, with SpaceX and all the space tech companies launching hundreds of satellites, maybe 10,000 communication satellites. If they stream videos to any part of the globe, ocean, two thirds of the globe is ocean. So we will benefit um, the bandwidth, uh, the space tech will enable in the future. So not only we can sit bit of data at very high cost today. So in the future, we can stream more data, like the sound data in the ocean, maybe videos in the future, real time. So people not only sit in the bedroom streaming videos from Netflix, 
hopefully someday we can stream data from the middle of the ocean at the same time. How cool. So you're kind of democratizing ocean data. Totally. Every part of the ocean matters. And then um, the ocean is global. Uh, take the global ocean to have an impact to the climate. And you cannot just measure the California coast or the East Coast or around Australia. You have to go through every coast of the ocean, our resources, and then think about the fishery uh, productivity in the ocean, storing CO2, removing CO2. So you take the entire globe to work together and to address the climate problem. That's a strong message. I, I love that one. I um, I really think that's part of why we're, we have these conversations. Do you think that there is that kind of a bias? You mentioned that the ca- coast of California, maybe the coast of Australia, those have a lot of data already. So it's other places that are missing that where the gaps are? Yeah, very clear. If you look at the seafloor data, 80% of the gaps, but it's not uniform. If you steer the gaps, most of the gap in the southern hemisphere, except Australia, and then uh, in the northern hemisphere or develop or around US and Europe and Japan, they are all 80, 90% mapped. It's some, most of the places 100% mapped because there's near the coast and there's a lot of utility for those data mapped. But uh, many other countries and then uh, is all 80, 90% seafloor never been mapped and not many ships passing by. Um, if you're not major port, it's just not many ships to go through. So those are the gaps we need to fill. We need to understand um, seafloor at the first step, and then we need to understand resources in the ocean, ecosystem, fisheries, and then so we can protect them, and then we can utilize the ocean in the smart way, in the sustainable way, so we can combat climate change, protect our marine mammals, and the, and the ecosystem as a whole. Well said, Yi. I, I think... Before you mentioned that two thirds of the ocean had the the right temperature gradient for to, to harvest this energy. Um, firstly, I guess what what is that temperature gradient, and how deep do you have to go? Yeah, it depends on the season, depends on the location. In general, we're looking at five to ten degrees C centigrade temperature. So typically, you dive to somewhere between a couple hundred meters. Um, uh, depends on the area and the location and season. In the Mediterranean Sea, for example, in the summertime, you only need to go to 100 meters to get a 10 degree C temperature difference. In the middle of the Pacific near Hawaii, you'll need to go maybe 400 meters. So if you go to 500 meters, for sure, you'll you experience that temperature difference. It's, you know, it's really not that deep given some of the technology we have. We go thousands of meters now, huh? Exactly. Our energy system uh, ranked a thousand meters, and then we are planning to uh, increase that to two thousand meters in the near future. And then the, some of the robots already be able to go to six thousand meters, the deep Argo, for example. So we are going deeper as time goes, and the more data become uh, needed. Uh, what's been the the challenge, I guess, to get deeper? Like, what do you need to get down to two thousand or six thousand meters? You certainly have a, a larger, uh, heavier uh, pressure vessel, so you can uh, endure those pressure, and and also the the power required. The deeper you go, you consume more energy, so it's not linear. Sometimes, so really, you have to fight the gravity. 
uh, the pressure uh, tremendously. So energy, pressure, those are the challenges. And, and then you have to have uh, uh, certain redundancy, make sure it, 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 it is smart enough to come up to uh, call home. <laughs> so in case something goes wrong, you know, something do goes wrong sometime. Right. And what happens, I guess, if it gets into an area that doesn't have this temperature gradient enough to to power up are the, the yeah that's a go back to we do carry backup batteries in the system so just like you off the grid you have you know you you cannot plug in your cell phone you have to bring a bank of batteries and then when you do go camping so essentially the same way we carry uh backup batteries and then we are developing a a and the next generation um, technology, so allow robots to to glide in some way to navigate. So even essentially, when you are running out of uh, the temperature zone, if you need to charge your battery, essentially you swim back to the area when the, you have temperature difference. It's almost like a a bird and fish migrate and looking for the ideal condition to live in. Not every place have the same conditions. You drift into uh, the Labrador Sea, for example, is cold, and then after you consume your energy, you have like two bar left, and then you probably want to use those energy to swim back to the area you can recharge your battery or or swim back to the coast. So there are a num- number of different ways to mitigate um, that uh, uh, area. So um, just try to survive, and, and then just, you know, that's the battery technology is changing dramatically. The density is increasing every year, getting cheaper every year. So time is on our side. We benefit from the consumer battery technology. And then the oceanography can um, can make our robots much longer. So every advancement leads to more advancement. And I, I definitely can understand you wouldn't go on a mission like like these without redundant systems. So... Do is there a use, say, in the Arctic, or you mentioned Labrador Sea is very cold? Yeah, this is very interesting. Uh, there, we have a new uh, R and D project uh, funded by the Navy. Uh, we are developing uh, air sea uh, temperature diff- harvesting uh, system. So we harvest energy from the air sea temperature difference. So temperature difference doesn't have to be in the ocean between surface and a deep ocean. So we are prototyping a power system in the Arctic on the ice. So in the winter time, the ocean is relatively warm, near zero freezing temperature, but the, um, the atmosphere is minus 20 degree cold. So that's the big temperature difference we can harvest and, you know, almost like take your steam engine to the Arctic and then, you know, convert those 20 degree temperature difference in them. Um, uh, into electricity, so you harvest more in the winter time because the air is cold, and then you you consume your energy in the summer when you have less temperature gradient, and you survive through the winter. So we have a two year project to start this month. So hopefully we can do a prototype testing by the end of twenty twenty three on the icebreaker into the Arctic. Oh wow! Um, will you go on the icebreaker, or is this a I'm looking at my smartphone thing again? My engineer were go, and uh, uh, I, you know, I, I grew up in a landlocked city, and I didn't go to, I, I didn't see the ocean on, until I'm 20 years old. So I, I enjoy one day or two, and then I went out to cruise for a couple of days, but um, I cannot survive more than a week on the ship. 
Fair enough. Tough, tough conditions. I understand. Yeah, for some reason I cannot go underneath inside the ship. If I go out to cruise, I have to stay on the deck twenty four seven, so I cannot survive more than a week. You get seasick if you go under. Oh, I get a. I cannot work. I cannot do anything once I go inside. I can do things on the deck. I can work, but uh, it's not really a, a. I cannot go to a long cruise. Yeah, I think that's the most common um, question I get from people is, don't you get seasick? How did you do it for weeks? And I think just some people don't have it and some people do. So Exactly. So that's why I have to work really hard to get these robots to stay (laughs) in the water a long time. So they work for us. We can, you know, pick up the smartphone, the data show up automatically. Very clever. <laughs> um, so has this been done in space as well? Because you mentioned about the temperature difference in the air being harvestable. Has, have they tried it in space? Not in the space in different, because of space, they have a different consideration. The, the volume and weight is a big consideration. Everything had to put on the rocket, launch into the space. So size matters, weight matters. So it's very costly to launch a large device. So so you see solar panels, you see nuclear power being used in space, and then those still probably the two common source of energy um, until we reduce the cost of launch vehicles and then many other technology is just very difficult to implement. So the name of the game is reducing cost, and you can do that by making things less, a little bit less human involvement and cheaper components, more available data. Right. And it's happening. It's happening everywhere. The launch launch costs come down dramatically compared to even 10 years ago when I worked for NASA. So now you can launch is ten, almost several times cheaper than the tra- traditional rockets. So it's going to be cheaper. So many. Uh, last time I checked, it's almost 100 space tech companies and they're working really hard, leveraging 3D printing, uh, reusable vehicles like SpaceX and all kind of innovation being applied in the space tech. So fantastic. It's sort of uh, standing on the shoulders of genius. And I I was thinking of that. And then I saw it actually on your homepage, ctrek.com. So it's a perfect saying every, every smart innovation leads to the next smart innovation or enables the next smart innovation. And then take a convergence of the different technology to make a miracle, you know. Right. We have we have benefit we benefit from a variety of different technology breakthroughs and innovation, and then they at their convergence when they converge, then we can even make even further progress in the in the ocean tech. Yeah. Is there anything else like any other projects you'd want to share or goals that you imagine, you know, applying this technology towards in the future? Yeah, our technology is uh, energy, uh, clean, sustainable energy. There's a number of different ways we can apply uh, to address big problems. And as I, the few example I mentioned before, uh, one, one more application I start looking for uh, is try to understand the offshore farming of the seaweed. So those are the offshore farming of seaweed require a lot of energy to do operation and, and also monitoring particularly if you use seaweed to, uh, to take CO2 uh, as a removal uh, approach uh, for the carbon dioxide and to, to address climate change. 
So, so there's a lot of, lot of energy demands. And so we are looking at um, how our technology can be combined with wave power. And then con- um, together we can provide a clean, sustainable way to power a, a seaweed farm, for example, offshore. So not only to use the seaweed to produce healthy food, clean fuel, maybe some material someday, make pl- company use seaweed to make plastic. So we you know, talk about the plastic problem. So we can have a seaweed made plastic. You can complete it biodegradable uh, without worry about and, and then end up in a landfill. And uh, seaweed is a very uh, effective way of take CO2 from the atmosphere. So, so there's X prize to have the competing for um, the technology to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, either on land uh, or capture, you know, uh, direct capture in the air or use ocean technology, like grow, growing seaweed, like growing trees in the ocean, you know, take CO2 and then put on the seafloor and then they are stay there for hundreds of years. And then so we can reduce the CO2 from the atmosphere. It's, uh, you touched on a subject I really love. I, I'm very into seaweed and all its applications. And like you said, bioplastics and, and carbon sequestering. So we'll definitely have to bring some experts on to talk about that as well. But good to know that your technology is what they need to achieve some of those goals and farm both seaweed and I guess all kinds of aquaculture. Totally, yeah. Um, we we moved to San Diego early this year and during the pandemic, and then really started discovering the ecosystem in San Diego from research academic institutions to uh, companies and then different groups. So really excited to to know more about the seaweed industry in San Diego, and then hopefully be a part of this new seaweed economy, seaweed industry here. Super. Well, I think that's it. I hate to have to wrap up with you, but um, that's a good ask to get involved with the seaweed industry. And is there anything else you'd like to leave listeners with or a last sum up of SeaTrek and your aspirations? Yeah, ocean, ocean tech is blue economy is really new and not very well defined and then take uh, a lot of awareness and then support from everybody to uh, to push this blue economy to the next level. You know, um, so you, and it, I think that's touch on to everybody. So so everybody can help in many different ways. So if you uh, have any questions or want to know more, reach out to me at yi at ctrack.com. Go to our website, ctrack.com, and join our journey to make a difference to, uh, to protect our ocean and address climate change. Fantastic. Uh, did you have a social media handle you wanted to share too, or best way is email? Yeah, we have a Twitter, Ctrack Inc. Um, so you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Facebook, Ctrack. So all those places, and I'd be happy to uh, chat with you. Thank you so much, Yi, for taking the time to talk to me. It's really neat to have so many technologies and innovations being reapplied, basically, in different ways. We just need the clever people to see it and then to do it. So, like we said, stand on the shoulders of genius. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, and then take the whole community to make a difference so everybody can help their own way. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, 
Once again, thank you very much for listening. I hope you find it as exciting as I do to learn about these creative people and what they're coming up with to address environmental challenges. There's so much more I think Ian and I could get into, so hopefully we'll have him back in the future. Please feel free to reach out and be in touch with me as well. Most importantly, tell people about these fun innovations. Help amplify the message of these pioneering entrepreneurs and their companies. You can make a ripple effect and ripples are waves. So go make your own. Mm -hmm.